over the next few months. There's so much that we could talk about in there. I think when I look at this story, I am very interested in the responses of the father in the story. Because I believe when you look at the responses of the father to his two sons in the story, you pick up some attitudes, some characteristics, uh, some attributes about the father heart of God, which I believe he wants for his church. Amen? Not just for our church, but for his church, full stop. We do live in unusual and unprecedented times. And I believe that God is doing a new thing. And one of the new things that he is doing is he's resetting his church with a different paradigm and he's realigning his church with, I believe, a realignment back to kingdom values. But I really felt as I was preparing that before I begin to share this stuff, I think we should pray together. I think we should do that. And and in particular, I I have crafted in my notes here, I've typed out a prayer for the prodigals. Is that all right? So I want you to just close your eyes and uh, as we pray together, be mindful of those people in your world that are away from God. Maybe they are family members and maybe they're not, but you're just aware that they need to reconnect with God. So this prayer is for them. So let's pray together. Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, we come. Humbly yet confident that you hear our prayers. You know our hearts, you hear our prayers, and you care about all that concerns us. You understand the burden that we carry and how we want more than anything to see our loved ones come to you, amen? Help us to remember that you love them more than we ever could. You desire to extend your great love and forgiveness, your mercy and your hope to them. We praise you for you alone are our redeemer, our rescuer, our savior, our Lord and our King. And we understand that your mercies are new every morning and your faithfulness is great and extends to every generation and to every nation. Thank you that nothing is too difficult for you and that your resurrection power is unlimited, amen? We know and believe that no one is so lost that you cannot find them or reach them. Please open their blind eyes that they might see your truth. Rescue those walking in darkness and heal the deep wounds of those who have been hurt and offended. We pray for the miraculous intervention of your spirit to draw our family back to yourself. Holy Spirit, you are the one who convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we pray that our loved ones would stop and turn and come back home to the Father. Amen. Lord, we ask that you would interrupt and destroy the plans of the enemy over our family's lives in the name of Jesus. We pray the devil's schemes will be demolished and that your plans for salvation, for good, for a future and a hope would prevail in their lives. We thank you, Father, that you wait patiently with arms open wide for the prodigals to come back home. We thank you that their return is marked by your love, your grace, your forgiveness and your restoration. So we thank you for your death, your burial, and your resurrection, which has purchased their salvation and our salvation and all of humanity. Lord, forgive our unbelief. Forgive those times when we've doubted that you could change a distant heart. Forgive our hard-heartedness, our weariness, or our forgetfulness to pray continually. Thank you that you never give up on us. Thank you for answering our prayers. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen, amen. What we need to do is we need to consider 
the context of the passage that we've just read. We need to consider the story. So often we read scripture in isolation. So often we read a story and we don't always read what happened before it or even just after it. So let's do that very quickly. In the latter part of Luke 13, we see that Jesus is talking a couple of kingdom parables, specifically the one about the mustard seed and the one about the leaven. He's coming into Jerusalem and Pharisees are walking with him talking with him and contending with him as he walks and travels to Jerusalem. That is the context of Luke 13. In Luke 14, it says clearly in verse 1 and in verse 12 of Luke 14 that he is invited by a ruler of the Pharisees to come to his house to share the Sabbath meal. And Jesus accepts it. Please note that Jesus loves Pharisees. Hello. Hello. He's happy to go to the house and to hang out with them, right? He's happy to have fellowship in his home, right? Please notice he's spending time with those who oppose him. In Luke 14, verse 3, it says, lawyers and Pharisees are there. Not just the ruler of the house, but the house is full of lawyers and Pharisees, right? They're not the same group of people, by the way, Mark, lawyers and Pharisees, okay? <laughs> All right, um, and regardless of them being around him, knowing that they oppose him, it does not stop him from continuing to build the kingdom of God in front of their eyes. So what does he do on a Sabbath? He heals a man. And they're terribly upset with him. And of course, he tells a parable to silence their concerns about that. And he goes on and tells another story that outlines to them their selfish desires of desiring prominence, prestige, and blessing. It talks to them about when you have a party, how come you want to look for the best place at the table? How come you don't let other people come in and join you? And he tells this story to them in their presence. Who's in the room? Lawyers and Pharisees. That's who he's talking to. He has this one-on-one -on -one conversation, Luke 14, verse 15, if you're following in your Bibles. He has a one-on-one -on -one conversation with one of the Pharisees, just like you do at a dinner party, right? Or like you do here this morning, the person beside you has a one-on-one -on -one conversation, knowing that the Pharisee doesn't really agree with him. He still has a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him. Can you see the kingdom of God here? And what is the essence of this parable that he tells? The essence of the parable that he shares with this guy is that a, great, that a, a, a master held, holds a great supper and continually people make excuses why they couldn't come to the supper. A great picture of the kingdom of God. That's the story that he tells him. They're still sitting there and it indicates maybe in verse 25 of Luke 14 that he may have left the, the household. Because it says that a multitude is now following him. So he leaves the house and a multitude is now following him. Please understand that the Pharisees are still hanging around. And he speaks at the end of Luke 14, one of the most challenging parables you probably will ever read, right? In there, he uses this phrase, you cannot be my disciple. And he repeats it three times. And you can Google that phrase. You can look in your studies. You will not see that phrase used anywhere else in the New Testament, only in this parable. And it's not repeated once. It's repeated three times. And he throws out before everyone, everyone who's listening, the Pharisees, the rulers, the scribes, the disciples, everyone, the lawyers, everyone who's listening, understand this. You cannot be my disciple if, don't read it sometime. You'll be deeply challenged by it, by what he says in there. He swears, 
He is, this is what I find about Jesus. He is totally inclusive when it comes to who he wants in his kingdom, but he's very exclusive about how you can get in. Because he's not given to religion, he's given to relationship. He says, I am the way, not another way, not one of the ways you want to choose. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? So this is the context. You're still with me? We haven't come to Luke 15 yet. This is the context of what is happening. And he tells this story uh, of parable, and then we come to Luke 15, and there's no gap in there. There's no gap in the story. It says this, then all the tax collectors and the sinners, oh, I love this. Come on. He just spoken one of the toughest parables, right? And then it says this, then all of the tax collectors, not the lawyers and the Pharisees, who've also heard, but now all of the tax collectors and the sinners drew near because they wanted to hear him. Don't you love that? No, maybe you don't. That's what it says there, right? And then it says this in verse two, but the Pharisees and the scribes, they were there now. They were there the whole, they never actually left. They were still there. They murmured and criticized him. Not for what he said, not for any of the parables that he taught, but they were upset because he was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. They wanted him all to themselves. Just change him, mold him, let him become like them. Think about that story. And now nothing, without a heartbeat, it's all in red for you. It's seamless in your Bibles. It's all about the kingdom of God. There is four, not one, four back-to-back parables. What are those four parables? The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, and the unjust, unjust servant is what it says. And they're all four back-to-back, seamless all the way through. We just dive straight into the prodigal son and then tie it in with the others. But friends, read it. There's four parables, not one, not three, four. Four back-to-back parables. And all of them are carrying this idea of the kingdom of God and revealing to us his character, his grace, his truth, his kingship. Now, who is listening to these parables? Who is listening to the parable that you just read? Tax collectors and sinners. Who else? Pharisees and scribes. And according to Luke 16, they're still in the room, still hanging around the disciples. Luke 16, verse 1 says, and he turned to the disciples and said, they're still there. So we have this group of people in the room. How, how, would, you, how, would, how, how would you say that's a, a very mosaic-looking room? How many of you believe that's a very polarized-looking room, right? So Jesus is addressing all of them when he speaks this parable. That gives us a clue as to who he's addressing. Everyone in the room. You work out where you are. Are you the older son or are you the younger son? Or are you going to be like the father? That's pretty much what he's saying. Get the context? That's the context of the story. It's powerful to read things in context, and I've just done that very, very briefly. Now, friends, do you think that this story is really about a son? Famously, it's become the prodigal son. But do you really think the story is about a son? Or is it not about two sons? Or as one commentator says, is it not about the father rather than the two sons? So in my study Bible that I've got at home, but I don't bring it to church because it's quite fat, I'll leave it at home, I'll bring this small version of it here, but it's got subheadings in it, and my subheadings say, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. If you go to the new Passion Translation that's coming out, maybe they've seen something that maybe we should pay attention to. It calls it the lost lamb, the lost coin, and the loving father. Wow. Wow. That caught my attention. And let's not forget that not the only group of people in the room, there's also the servant who carried the message and also the servants who went to the party. 
which the youngest son was willing to join in with, the other servants, right? But we haven't got time to talk about them today. And indeed, we could labor on who was the citizen of the other country that he joined himself to as well. But my heart is burdened this morning because I sense that as we look at the attitudes of the youngest son and the oldest son and also the attributes of the father, we're gonna learn some things about prodigal church versus mature church. Okay, so let's do that in a few moments that we've got together. It won't be a few moments, you know that, right? Um, and I do I wanna encourage you to encourage others to pick up on the podcast during the week. Okay, let's look at the youngest son. Help me, Michael, with the slides. They call him the lost son or the prodigal son. What does the word prodigal mean? It means wasteful. The first thing I noticed about the youngest son is this. He said, give me. Everyone say, give me. Give me. Verse 12, give me my portion. The father apparently could distribute his livelihood at his death via a will, or he could gift it during his lifetime, which is what he chose to do. You also know, according to custom, the elder son would make claim to two-thirds of the livelihood, and the younger son would make claim to one-third of the livelihood. The elder son, the first son, the firstborn, was always favored in the Hebrew culture. So he probably received it in cash, in a monetary form, because he took what was his, and he went to a faraway land, right? So he didn't take property with him, he took monetary value with him. So the father cashed in something or did something to, in order to, he made a sacrifice right there. He did something in order to give his son something, right? Uh, whatever we receive from God has always cost God something, especially when it comes to our salvation, our redemption, right? Uh, so, so many Christians today, I believe, carried the attitude of this son. Now, please understand, when I'm talking today, I'm talking about the church, not just our church, but the church and the church that I've been involved in over the last 32 years of my life. They have a give me attitude. Give me my ministry, give me my opportunity, give me my programs, my rights, my preferences, my songs, my style of preaching, and my favorite seat. Give me a prophecy, give me a word, give me some encouragement, and give me some better teaching. Give me, give me, give me, and please note that God gives the son what he wants. He gives it to him, but he also allows him to leave. Friends, what I see here is a spirit of individualism and entitlement. Again, I have to refer to it. Myself and Nikki had great new Christian, uh, new Christian teachers who told us that now we, we're giving our lives to Jesus. Not just Sundays, but we're giving our lives to him. And they taught us about what that looked like I'm th ever thankful for Paul for teaching us that. Not this Paul here in the scriptures, but Paul, our new Christians instructor, right? Who tried to teach us that that's what it looks like. You've given your life to him now, right? He's now in control. Friends, the only way back is in verse 19. After he goes and does things his way with his give me attitude, he comes back to the father and he says, make me. Everyone say, make me. And that's the difference. A disciple has a make-me attitude, not a give-me attitude. The spirit of consumerism and individualism and entitlement is always around give me, give me, give me. But the spirit of discipleship, the spirit of the kingdom is always saying to the Lord, make me, mold me. You're the potter, I'm the clay. Make me. And the only way back from an entitlement mentality, give me what I want, is to say, Lord, make me whatever you want. 
Did you catch that? It's powerful. I mean, I can stop there and that will be enough for today, in my opinion. That we can now wrestle with that in our own lives and pray that through and think about it, meditate on it. In parts of our life, are you willing to allow him to make you rather than make me, make me? See, the spirit of the mature church has humility and a willingness, it has obedience, it has repentant repentance, it has, it has a sense of, Lord, make me. It exists to share the gospel, and it's not looking, a church is not looking to build an entertainment center for bored Christians. It's looking to equip people to be those type of people that carry the kingdom of God into all the earth. Make me, Lord, make me, send me, use me, not give me, give me, give me, give me. Amen. The second thing I notice about the, the younger son is that he's challenged between ownership and stewardship. That's what I, he says, give me what is mine, or give me, whatever version you're reading, give me my portion. He thinks he owns something. You see, in, in the world in which we live, secular society, it's always building ownership. The great Australian dream is to own your own home, you see? And so the, the son has an ownership mentality rather than a stewardship mentality. Uh, we need to own our car, own our house, own our boat, our superannuation, our shares, our investments, our rights, our body. It's my body. I can do whatever I want with my body. It's my unborn child. I can do whatever I want with my unborn child. My, my destiny, my future, don't tell me what to do with my. When you come to Jesus, it's not my, it's his. It's his. He owns everything. The, all the earth and the fullness thereof is his. It's his. I give it all to him. So I don't become an owner, I become a steward. I become a steward of the gifts that he gave to me. I become a steward of the manifold grace that he put upon my life. I become a steward of the faith that he gave to me. Either I practice it or I don't. I become a steward of how I handle God's word. I become a steward of the money that he gives to me because he could take it away. It's not my money. You see? And when I leave this earth, have you noticed? You take nothing with you. What do you take with you though? All the eternal stuff that you stewarded. Your salvation, for example, that you're supposed to work out in this life with fear and trembling. Are you with me? So it's a stewardship. Just look at the person beside you and say, it's about stewardship. It's about stewardship. Do that. It's about stewardship. You see, listen to me. When you own it, you control it. Hello? When you own it, you control it. Therefore, you wear the consequences of where it goes, and in the younger son, that's what he got. The father says, you want to own it? Okay, own it. Off you go. And he goes. And he owns it. And what does it lead to? He owns it. He controls it. He wastes it. He loses it. And the only way is to go back to the source to get back something. You see? He's not a steward. He's an owner after all. You see? Help me, bless me, lead me, prosper me. But when you're a steward of something, you can expect that he's still in control. He's still in control, therefore I can expect his blessing. I can expect his guidance. I can expect his favor. I can expect his increase. Why? Because I'm just stewarding it. I don't own it. Lord, what do you want me to do with my money, my business, my time, my gifts? 
this morning when I go to church, what do you want me to do? You see, you're stewarding it. And you can expect his favor and his increase, you see. His son, his ownership, the son, his ownership led to his poverty. Why? Because he removed himself from the source, that's why. He removed himself from the source of blessing. He removed himself from the source of authority over his life. He removed himself from the source of covering over his life and he went and did things his own way. That's what he did. Maturity. Did he have maturity? I'm not sure. Maturity requires us to be stewards. A mature church know how to steward the things that God gave to them. You want to say, church, friends, don't look at a building or an institution or a denomination or look at Gary and Nikki as the pastors. You've got to look at yourself. We are the church. Not the only one. That's a cult. We're the church. We're part of his universal church. The prodigal son means he was wasteful. He wasted. Friends, listen to me. Don't waste what God has given to you. Rather, invest what God has given to you. Um, we'll come back to it, hopefully. The third thing I notice about the son is that he made an ungodly alliance and forgot about his godly reliance, is what I notice. It says that he joined himself to a citizen of the land. Notice that. So when he was in trouble, watch this, verse 14. When he, was, when he began to be in trouble, when he began to be in trouble and now had nothing left, he doesn't go back to the Father. Hello. He goes and makes an alliance with it, with a citizen of the land. When he was broke and he began, it says in verse 14, and he began to be in need. Your version might say he began to want, right? And instead of turning to God, he turned to the world. How often do we do that? How often do we look to the world to be our provider rather than God as our source? Friends, listen to me. It's easy to make alliances with the world that are not helpful to you or to the kingdom of God. Can I say this? It's easy to make alliances and rely upon the system of the world and not rely upon God. It's true. They rely upon God and trust Him this is what a mature church does and what mature Christians do. They rely upon God and they trust Him more than they trust the government. I do believe that it's part of the reason why America got themselves into trouble recently. Friends, I'll say it publicly here. Trump is not the savior of America. Only Jesus is. And neither is our prime minister who I respectfully say is a good godly man, but he's not the savior of Australia, though he'd be a born again, spirit-filled Christian. Jesus is the savior of Australia, lest we forget. If politics was gonna change the world, then God would have sent a politician into the world to die upon a cross. We rely upon the system more than God. We rely upon seek, find, Medicare, the doctor, the lawyer, the bank, more than we rely upon God, friends. I wanna ask you this morning, are you really relying upon God? Be careful what alliances you make. Make sure you're relying upon God. What did the citizen do? He made an alliance. He's, got, he's in great need and he makes an alliance. And what does this alliance do for him? He is sent to the field to feed pigs. What a great alliance to make, right? Sent to the field to feed pigs. Friends, if he'd have made an alliance with God, he would have been sent to the field to preach the gospel. Big difference. 
He was sent to the field to feed pigs. And what did that lead him to? Nothing. Instead of flourishing, he died out there. He could have died out there among the pigs. Here's the next thing that I see. Um, He was went, not sent. He left and he went to a faraway land. The father never sent him away. God doesn't send people away out of his kingdom. He sends them to fruitfulness. The kingdom of God throughout history and time, eternity, has expanded and extended because God, the apostolic nature of God is that he sends people. They don't just go. When people are went more than they are sent, they're still taking ownership of the result. Friends, I want to be sent. We were sent here by God to lead River City. We were sent here. We were sent to go to UK. We were sent when we left Adelaide to come to Brisbane. We was every place that Nick and I have gone to, we want to be sent, we will never be went. Never. Refuse to. Why? Because of the apostolic nature of God's character, he is ascending God. He sent, the God so loved the world that he sent. Sent. He heard the cry of his people, so he sent them a savior. He sent Moses. He sends people. He, he looks for a man. Who, who will go for us and who can we send for us? Isaiah says, me, Hanani, me, here I am. Send, not went. There is no went. Went means you walk away. Sent means you're still under his protection and guidance and his commissioning. Friends, we should all pursue that. And while too many Christians are went, they leave on their own ministry, their own mission, their own journey, their own pursuit, their own ministry, their own preference. Too many are went, and God doesn't want that for his church. We will lose the apostolic nature of the church if we continue to behave like that across every denomination. You understand what I'm saying? It's so easy for you to think about our own church. Don't do that. Think about the church, right? The church in Australia, the church globally, it cannot lose this apostolic nature and have this fragmented system where people just drift around and go where they want to, right? Throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, they prayed, they fasted, and they sent Saul and Barnabas to Antioch. Sent after prayer and fasting, not went because they wanted to or felt like it. Oh, there's so much more I could say on that, but I've got to keep an eye on the time, don't I? Because we still want worship yet, right? Cool, right. The older son, the older son. Let's move a bit quicker with the older son, okay? Not because it's any less important, but because I've got to look at the time, right? The older son. Many of us will quickly identify with the older son. Maybe, maybe it's only me, right? And quickly justify his responses. Like I feel full of sort of protective of the older son. Maybe it's because I'm the eldest boy in my family. I feel sort of protective. I feel, I feel, I feel that when I read his responses, I feel like he's, he's sort of justified. I mean, go and knock your younger brother out. <laughs> you know? So what do we see in the attitude of the older son? Because I'm not going to justify his behavior. What I'm going to say to you is that I see that there's a problem here. Remember, who's the audience? Who's Jesus talking to? Lawyers and Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, tax collectors and sinners and disciples. He's talking to all of them. You decide where you fit in the story is really what he's saying. You decide where you fit in this parable. Now, I've told you about a younger son and that could be you, but how about we talk about the older son now? Because this could be you as well, is really what he's saying. You with me? 
Okay, at least that's my interpretation of it. Verse 25, the law of first mention, where is he? In the field. That's where he is. Why? Because he's hard working. He's in the field. He's not in the party. He's in the field. He's working hard for his dad. That's what he's doing. In verse 29, he reminds his dad. He reminds his dad. All these years, all these years, all I've done is serve you. All of these years. Who's ever done that with God? Obviously, it's only me and Nikki. All these years, God, all these years, all the sacrifices that we have made. Oh, God, no, 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 listen to it. And it's not the spirit of a son, it's the spirit of a servant speaking. Can you see that? Hello? Can you see that? As if God doesn't know how much you've given. As if God doesn't know how much you've cried and sacrificed. How much you've been willing to give up or not give up. As if he doesn't know. Do you, think, do you, th- do you really think that God needs to be reminded of that stuff? Maybe you do, I don't know. But all I know is that I read this son, he says, you know, you never gave me a young goat that I could go and have a party with my friends and do my thing. See, that spirit, that spirit coming back, that, that sense of entitlement's coming back again. He's just like his younger brother. He's echoing the same sentiments. You see, servants serve. Ser- what's, it's not on your notes, on, on the screen, sorry. Servants serve. Servants look for reward. They look for equity. I worked my wages, now give me my reward. Which is why the, 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 the vineyard owner was considered to be unjust. Remember the vineyard owner who hired people throughout the day? And those that were paid at the beginning of the day and those that were hired in the last hour of the day all got the same wages. Now who would be ticked off? Yeah? It's a story about grace, that story. It doesn't matter when you come in, the reward is the same. The reward's the same. Doesn't matter if I've been serving 32 years or 3.2 months. When I give my heart to Jesus, I get the same reward. I get salvation. I get him. I get the kingdom of God. You see, servants serve. Servants look for reward. And servants keep count of hours and days and sacrifices that they have made. But what does a son look for? Sons don't serve. Sons love. That's what they do. Their default measure is not serving. Their default measure is loving and they don't look for reward, they look for faithfulness and loyalty. And the things they measure and keep count of is fruit and faith. That's what they do. And that's what he did not have. And rightly so, he's called out for it. And when I'm reading that story, I'm reminded of of the church in Ephesus who was rebuked in Revelation chapter two. I know your works, I know your labor, I know your patience, I know you persevered, I know you haven't become weary, you've kicked out the false prophets, but, 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 you left your first love. The second son had forgot the first love. That's what I see. A mature church has a great work ethic, but they love God first. Here's the second thing I notice about this, uh, this second son. He is, he is self-righteous rather than being humble. Listen to what he says in verse 29. I have never transgressed any of your commandments ever. Wow. I mean, he's just like Jesus then, right? Like that's total perfection. He's got blinkers on. And that's what self-righteousness does. It blinkers you to your own faults and failings. And while you are pulling the speck out of someone else's eye, there's a plank in your own. Have I been there before? Absolutely. I'm preaching to the mirror. Friends, how could he be so perfect? 
It's like, well, listen, Dad, in comparison to my brother, I'm a flippin' saint. It's really what he's saying. Plank out of the eye, right? In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, it says, it's not wise to class yourself, compare yourself, commend yourself, and measure yourself by yourself, is what it says, or among ourselves, right? That's self-righteousness. In Philippians 3, it says, I count all things as lost that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but only having his righteousness that I have because of my faith in Christ. Paraphrase, Philippians 3. That's what he said. The righteousness that you have is only because of Jesus. There is nothing that you have done to earn it. What I see here is I see a religious and pharisaical spirit. A mature church, therefore, is marked by humility and thankfulness for the righteousness they have in God. See, the next thing I see is he is offended. How do I know he's offended? Listen carefully, it says in Matthew 24, and Kerry mentioned this the other day, last week in testimony time, right? In Matthew 24, it says there will be wars, there will be famines, there will be pestilence, there will be disease, there will be earthquakes, and then it mentions two more things. And the love of people will grow cold and many will be offended. Friends, don't get offended. What is he offended about? I mean, think about this. What is the oldest son offended about? He is offended at the father's grace. He's, he's offended because his father showed favor to his brother. He's offended because his father restored his brother. Think about it. He's offended. You see, friends, his offense grows all of this bad stuff inside of his heart. Uh, you see, he's offended at God's willingness, desire, and ability to forgive, restore, and bless his younger son. Notice the father has done nothing wrong to the older son, and he's still offended. Please tell me, what did the father do wrong to the older son? Nothing, yet he's still offended. Sometimes our offense has no reason for being. And many Christians cry out, it's not fair. Friends, life is not fair. And if you're looking for God to be fair, you're also in the wrong religion. Because the grace of God is unreasonable. It's surprising. It doesn't do what you expect. The grace of God is extravagant and it's often misunderstood, the grace of God. Just be grateful that the grace of God is on your life and that it's available to everybody. You see, friends, God is a God of justice not fairness, and they are different. He's always right, and we're not. You see, he's offended by God's favor, by his forgiveness, and by his faithfulness. Friends, I wrote in my side notes here, it's better to be judged by God than to be judged by men. What does offense do to him? Very quickly, it's important. What does offense do? In verse 28, he gets angry. In verse 28, he would not go in. Offended people isolate themselves. Offended people get angry without reason or sometimes with reason. 
Offended people isolate themselves. He said he would not go in. Can I just say this right here, right? That was adding to the humiliation of his father in the party. All the village knew that the oldest son was not there. The oldest son in the household, if there was a dispute between the father and the sons, often the oldest son would be part of the solution, the answer, the reconciler. In this situation, he wasn't. And his removal from the party was adding humiliation to his father, embarrassment to his father, that he would not come in and do what his father wanted, the whole village to throw a party for the younger son. Isolation. And he didn't really care. He stayed out there. He stayed out there. Why? Because he's offended. Verse 29, he begins to compare. You never did that. For me, comparison. Whether reasonable or not, offense leads us to comparison. Verse 29, then it leads to self-justification. All of these years I've done this. He hasn't. Self-justification. This is how I am, the way I am. I'm justifying myself. Verse 30, it shows offense brings animosity. Listen to what he says. This son of yours has. He didn't call his brother by name. Not that there's any names in parables. But he says this. My brother has. No, he says, this son of yours. Can you see it? Animosity. Animosity. That's what offense does. It creates animosity. And then... I don't have a verse for it other than the whole passage, the whole dialogue. Here's the sad part of the story. What's the sad part of the story? Exactly. There's unwillingness to reconcile. There is no evidence of reconciliation. There is no evidence that the oldest son reconciled, that he actually came back into the house. There is no evidence. He stood by his self-righteousness and his animosity and his offense. He stood by it. There's no evidence that he went there. Now, before I forget this, because I may forget, no, I think it's in my notes further on. Yeah, it's right. The eldest son, what would the eldest son have preferred? If you think about that, would the eldest son have preferred that his brother never returned? I mean, think about it. Where's the rationale behind his offense? Would he have preferred that his older brother, that his younger brother never returned? Would he have preferred that he died in poverty? Would he have preferred that he lived as a pig feeder in a foreign land? What would he have preferred? Would he have preferred that he returned to live on the farm as one of his servants that he could command around? Hey, brother, go and get this. Hey, you, go and get that. Hey, you, go and get that. Would he have preferred that? Would he have preferred that his brother was never forgiven? Would he have preferred that his dad never forgave him? Think about the rationale of his offense. What did he prefer? I'm not sure. I'm bewildered. You see, here is the kingdom law the Bible says in John 1:12, to as many as received him, he gave them the right to become servants. No. Shock horror. No, to as many as received him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. You see, when you receive him, you're a child, not a servant. We shouldn't act like servants. We act like children. Um, ben, please come. Let me just finish this last part quickly. I've got a little bit here, but let me move through it as quickly as I can. I don't want you to miss this. I don't get distracted with the team. If you're listening on podcasts, I hope you're still staying there. Listen to me. I want us to now look very quickly at the attitude of the father. Because I believe the attitude of the father shows for us and defines for us what he wants his church to be. And we want you and I to be as well. 
We are his church. He wants us to be like this. Okay, the first thing I want you to see is this, is that he gives him the freedom to choose. He gives him the freedom to choose. Put, the next, put that first one up there, Michael. A willingness, a freedom to choose. Please notice in the parables, when the sheep goes missing, the shepherd goes looking for the lost sheep. And it indicates in the story that perhaps the sheep wasn't a sheep, but it was a lost sheep, because it talks about rejoicing in heaven when one comes into the kingdom of God. That's someone who was lost, right? But notice the shepherd goes chasing the sheep. You with me? Yes? Hello? Yeah. In the second story, the coin gets lost and the woman sweeps frantically through the whole house till she finds her coin. And then Jesus brings a parallel about how we rejoice when someone who was lost is now found. You with me? And now we come to the parable of the lost son. We're not talking about objects, a sheep or a coin. We're talking about people. And the son leaves the house and the father does not chase him. Because here's one of the powerful things about being a mature Christian, you get to make a choice. Here's one of the powerful things about serving the Lord, you get to choose whether you wanna follow him or not. He doesn't make you do anything. And he says, okay, son, father heart, right? Do you think the father's heart was broken? Okay, son, you wanna go? You go. You're not a sheep and you're not a coin, I ain't chasing you. You wanna go, you go. And what does the father do all the time? Indicates halfway through the story. He's out there waiting for him to come back home. Don't you love that part of the story? It says he saw him while he was a long way off. It doesn't say he went searching for him a long way off. It says he stood at the doorway waiting for him to come a long way off and he saw him. But he had to wait for him to turn and come back. And that's the painful thing about prodigals. The father doesn't chase him. They have to come to their own senses and come back. That's the powerful thing. You get to choose. That's why friends as a pastor, I don't always chase people. Sorry, I just can't. A mature church is a willing church. It's a Hanani church. It's whatever you want. I'm willing. I'm willing. Next thing I notice about the Father, put the slide up for me because I'll just write down Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15, and write down Romans chapter 14, verses 10 and 13. Let me say that again. Write down Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15, and write down Romans 14, verses 10 to 13. You'll love those two verses. The second thing I notice about the Father is that He is eager. Everyone say eager to show compassion especially when there is repentance. While the son was still a great way off, he ran to him. A mature church, therefore, is eager to show compassion. Amen. Let us be eager to show compassion. Let's move quickly to the next one. He loves to restore and bless. What does he say? My son's home. Put on the best robe. One commentator said the best robe had to be the father's robe. There was no better robe than the father's robe. So he actually threw his father, his own robe on his son. He gave him a signet ring. The ring identifies of a restoration of his name, his family name. 
It's a restoration of access to the wealth of the family. The signet ring also identified authority. Because if you wore that signet ring, no matter where you went, people knew who you belonged to and what you could access and what you couldn't with that ring. He put sandals back on his feet because poor people generally, not always, but didn't have sandals on their feet. But it speaks to me so much more about being, having his feet shot again with purpose that he could walk upright as a son and not as a servant any longer. Powerful. There's a reason for every word that Jesus spoke. And he says, bring the fatted calf, not the young goat and not a couple of chickens. Bring the fatted calf. The fatted calf was reserved for weddings. The fatted calf was reserved for bar mitzvah when the son would come of age. The, the fatted calf was, res, was reserved only for special guests and special events. Bring, not the young goat, not a couple of chooks, not a few snags for the barbie. No, bring out the fatted calf. Why? Because my son has come home. That's why. That's why. Because he was dead and now he's alive. Because he was lost and now he's found. There is no greater joy in the life of a church to see someone who was lost get found and someone who was dead come alive. There is no greater joy that should thrill your heart. And then there's this. What does he do? He reaffirms sonship. In verse 24 and in verse 31, he refers to both sons as his sons. He says, this is my son, he's come back home. And when he goes out to the field, he says, my son, my son, you're always with me. Son, what are you doing out here in the field? Doesn't call me miserable so-and-so. You've humiliated me, you've embarrassed me. What are you doing out here? He says, no, son, I don't know what you're doing out here in the field. Why aren't you happy as I am about your, about your brother? He's still a son. Friends, you are never servants, you're always sons. You see? He reaffirms sonship and a mature church lives in that mindset that we all become equals, sons and daughters of the living God. And finally, he is a peacemaker. He's not a peace lover. A mature church doesn't love peace at all costs. That is not what Jesus builds in the kingdom of God. We are peacemakers. We will do a series on the Beatitudes and I'll get a few people in this room to help me on that series. But Revelation 5 verse nine, read this. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. That's what sons do. They're peacemakers. Amen. They're peacemakers. And mature churches will not be peace lovers, they'll be peacemakers. A mature church is eager to restore and eager to bless. Eager. Amen. So there you go. Are you ready to worship now? If you've been listening on the podcast, thank you for joining us. It's gone a little bit longer than normal, but I do really feel that this message is very important for our church. Very, very important for other churches who may be listening as well. I hope it helps you. Amen. Hey, listen, this is what I want you to do now. I hope this morning with a, a new sense of desire, gratefulness, grace, I don't know, maybe a different perspective you could worship this morning with a with greater sense of revelation. Would you do that? You can sit, you can stand, you can walk around the room. That's the beauty of our setting, right? Mm. 
You can do whatever you want right now. Some of you might want to go and sit in the corner. Some of you might want to walk around. I don't know. But at the end of this, when you feel ready, grab a friend by the hand and take communion together. Okay? The team are going to worship now. And when it ends, it ends. Okay? God bless you.